Hello, friends. Welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Allison Coton, an interaction designer at EPEM Continuum. When you're a person who cooks at home a lot, there are a few foods that 99% of the time you know you can make better than any restaurant. For me, it's pancakes. I love diner food, but usually I'll order anything else on the breakfast menu because I know that mine are just going to be better. But of course, there's an exception. It's a diner up the street shaped like an Airstream with booths that are older than I am and a 10-page menu. And they're pancakes. Not too big, not too small, fluffy, hot. And they make them with sweet potatoes, which I never do at home. I can look between the seats at the counter to see who's flipping them. My pancake principles I learned from Barbara Castiglia, executive editor of Modern Restaurant Management Magazine, Nicole France, product marketing evangelist at Contentful, and our Buck Sleeper is in fact illustrating a larger set of ideas about the definition and newly challenging delivery of quality restaurant food, be that takeout or in situ. How do we know our food is good? Is it hot? Is it freshly prepared? Does it taste home-cooked or hopefully even better? COVID dining and COVID employment has turned the food service industry on its head, from decentralized cooking and delivery to outdoor dining to deeper engagement with supply chains than most chefs ever dreamed of. Let's hear about how the systems behind the scenes are evolving to meet new pressures and needs from restaurant diners and staff alike in service of that perfect pancake or whatever your ideal restaurant experience may be. Nicole, Barbara, welcome to our podcast, um, and thanks for joining us on a conversation today around all things food and restaurants and, and the future of eating out. So one thing that's come through very powerfully in, in our new research on um, uh, consumer preferences around food is the importance of freshness. So in this context, we take that to mean freshly cooked or freshly prepared, delivered hot, although I want to get your take on what fresh means to you. Um, We know, however, that supply chain and staffing issues in the past months and and year have made freshness in food more challenging than it has ever been before. Um, So, Barbara, maybe I'll start with you. What should restaurants and fast food providers be doing to ensure that they meet those consumer expectations on freshness? and, And what does freshness mean in 2022? Well, I think freshness in 2022 means a few different things because it depends on where you're meeting the guest. If you're meeting the guest in, uh, in the restaurant, if you're dining in, you know, it means the smell it's, it's even part of the ambiance of everything that you're doing. Um, it definitely all goes back down to quality and the quality of the products. If you're meeting people at the delivery, um, they definitely want it hot. They want it to be there so that they don't have to go reheat something in the oven. It's it's about that convenience factor. Um, you know, it's it's hard right now with supply chain issues, um, but restaurants really need to have you know uh, a handle on who their suppliers are, so that uh, the dishes that make them shine, particularly for independent restaurants, um, that they can get those those supplies and that they're going to be. Uh, you know, the same quality that they may have had before, uh, before there were supply chain issues. Um, You know, but freshness definitely means it's that whole experience uh, that you want to enjoy and savor the meal. I love that. Freshness is not uh, only in the ingredient itself, but it's in the entire uh, meal that you're having. Uh, Nicole, how about you? What is, what does freshness mean and how can we, how can we get there? I think Barbara really captured that pretty well. The the only thing I'd add is I think fresh has a few other connotations these days. Freshly made certainly is one of them. 
And that ties into this idea that if it's delivered, if it's it's delivered hot, if you're eating something in a restaurant, it's well presented and part of the overall experience. I think there's also an element of associating fresh with with healthier as well, because this is about the quality of the ingredients that are going into the food as well. And, you know, one of the things that I think we've seen as a result of the pandemic is a lot of people cooked a lot more for themselves, whether they actually wanted to or not. In some cases, it wasn't really an option. And I think that has in some ways shaped the expectation um, and often, I think, raised it as a result of what customers want when they dine out, whether it's, it's home delivery or whether they're actually eating in a restaurant. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about about delivery, because I think that we've seen a massive shift in expectations around how quick that is, how easy that is. Do things come hot? Do they come fresh? One of the things that I've been really interested to track is the rise of of the virtual restaurant and the ghost kitchen. Um, So offsite commissaries that are that are powering the the massive channel shift towards um, home delivery or or takeout. Um, I'm curious, Nicole, how do you see ghost kitchens or, or dark kitchens making an impact. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine the end of the the pandemic, but we we do know it'll it'll come. Is this here to stay or is this um, something that we'll look back as uh, a necessary infrastructure? Well, there's no question that this was a, a trend born of necessity. So it, that certainly is going to impact, I think, to some degree, the, the longevity of the ghost kitchen approach. But what I think we found is there are a whole lot of situations in which this makes sense as a business model. So it's kind of like turning the franchise idea on its head, because instead of having one brand that is in many, many locations, what you have is effectively one kitchen that may be cooking across many different kinds of cuisines, multiple brands, and is serving a local community. So from a from a business standpoint, it makes sense. You're you're really maximizing your big capital expenditure, which is the kitchen. And you're able to do that in a way that actually makes very efficient use of staff in many cases as well. So the the big advantage of the ghost kitchen, you know, now that we've gotten particularly past the kind of lockdowns where nobody was coming into a restaurant to eat and everything was about delivery is that you've actually got a model where you can really efficiently serve a variety of different audiences. um, And you can serve even the same audience with multiple different options from one place. So I think there are some basic economics of a ghost kitchen that are very much here to stay. And it's, it's interesting that you, you talk about the the kind of the business model and the economics. Um, Something that we've been thinking about a lot is that, you know, the, the kind of the core uh, bare bones ghost kitchen, say, where you're just starting up your own direct to consumer business is more of an MVP for how you scale. But what you've what you've brought up is this notion of creating multiple concepts or, or having multiple other brands in, in one kitchen. Uh, Barbara, I know you view the world through restaurant operations and, and a lot of um, uh, your clients and customers are looking at how we actually make these things and scale them. So what are you hearing when it comes to making that business model of a, of a multi-concept ghost kitchen um, scalable and feasible? Well, there is so much uh, investor interest and just interest in this area. 
um, for multiple reasons. You know, it was happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic really fueled this um, because of so many different things going on. Um, you can you can deal with staffing issues. Um, it's you're creating different things. If it's a delivery only model, you're taking a lot of, as Nicole pointed out, the economics. You're really making it an easier play for a lot of people. Um, the scalability of it, um, you know, uh, there people are doing it. They're they're putting them up in in different locations. You know, of course, they're they're looking for places that are uh, well populated. Um, you know, higher income maybe um, because people are are looking to this. But the thing that I really uh, like about this, um, and you know, when we had discussed talking about the the term ghost kitchen, you know, they're not really that scary. <laughs> There, you know, I think virtual kitchen is going to become the more of the name that people use moving forward. Um, but you know, the the ability to create brands and to create excitement and to kind of have an LTO um, as as a brand um, that fuels a lot of uh, entrepreneurial spirit and uh, and that's what really kind of excites me about moving forward in this is that for a little bit of investment you can have some new restaurants, uh, restaurateurs out there. So it's, uh, you know, that that's kind of the excitement that kind of fuels what, what I'm interested in seeing in the future. You don't even need a taco truck. No, <laughs> it is the new taco truck, even though those are still going on. But yeah, it is definitely, you know, the, the new thing that you can create. Uh, you know, if you make a good cookie or something, you can have uh, your own brand. So when it comes to making this, um, viable and, and we've, we've talked about about scalable and virtual kitchens growing. What still feels like the wild west? Um, what either physical spaces or digital technologies and tools just don't exist yet? Like what what are we still doing the the work around and and where do you see this coming? Um, I, I guess coming to mature in the next twelve months. Well, I'll take that. Um, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot more on the digital front and on the tech side, um, definitely with uh, AI and, um, you know, the the use of data to kind of better understand the guests. You know, when you don't have a guest right in front of you, um, you know, you, you have to understand them in a different way. So, you know, looking at all those stats and everything that that will be uh, what kind of um, you know, triggers this to, to move forward. Um, it, it's kind of using the technology that we have and looking at the technology that we will have in the future. Um, and it, a lot of it is, is fueled by economics. You can, the tech will cost less than, than a staff. Um, so there's a, there's a lot that's, um, that's going on that, um, that will kind of make this space even tighter and uh, more efficient. Yeah, I just, I'd add to that, that I think one of the really interesting challenges is that of scale. Because as Barbara points out, data becomes really, really critical here. And really that data is about a couple of things. One is behavior patterns, but the other is insight into what's motivating your customers and what they really want, what they're seeking. And to me, what's fascinating about that is that you've really got two options, especially on that latter point. One is when you have large scale data sets, when you are a large organization with a really broad customer base, there are a lot of patterns that you can detect that you have to draw inferences from, 
but can be very telling because often there's a gap between what people say they want or what they say they're going to do and what they actually do. The flip side of that coin is actually the small data. And by small data, I mean the really qualitative understanding that you get when you do have direct interactions with your customers. And that doesn't have to be face-to-face. It certainly can be, but it doesn't have to be. And it's that conversation. You know, Maybe it's the feedback that you get from a customer when they put something in the comment when they get the order, or there's feedback on you know, the delivery or feedback on the pickup. Um, there are ways to build in this kind of small data insight into your customer relationships that I think is often overlooked because we live in a world that, at least for the time being, really seems to value quantitative data over qualitative insights. But the simple fact of the matter is, sometimes you really don't know what customers want unless you have a conversation, unless you ask them about it. And those qualitative insights are, quite frankly, what makes it so much easier to interpret all of the quantitative data that you get. So in any business, but I think particularly in the restaurant business where things can change very rapidly, where tastes change, where where priorities and demands change, having that view into the small data, quote unquote, is just as important. And I would argue in some cases, even more important. And, you know, honestly, that's kind of a leg up for this, the smaller uh, independent restaurants as well. Sure. I, I understand that, that you're, you're a little bit closer to the both to the to the client and to the kitchen, right? So you can make those linkages. Um, Nicole, one of the things that both I think fascinates me and makes me really worried for the the future of restaurant operators and, and restaurant employees is just the the overabundance of data that that is available. Um, these people are already asked to do so many things in their in their role, and and to suddenly be uh, kind of cognizant of of a data set, large or small feels like just an extra burden. So how do we make that information and those insights as accessible and actionable um, to these people as possible? That ultimately comes down to the ability, number one, to gather it, but number two, to share it where it needs to go. And that that's really um, a question of accessibility, the systems that you use to maintain this stuff. But you know, honestly, I think it's also a question of how you derive insights from the data. So whoever's job it is, and it doesn't necessarily have to be everybody's job, there might be one or two roles that really focus on this. It's all about interpreting that data into something meaningful. And honestly, that's a hell of a lot easier to share than sharing big data sets. And I think it's a question of putting that into context for employees. So we talk a lot about customer experience, putting stuff into context for customers. Um, It's easy to forget that we equally need that context for our staff and our employees. Just overloading people with with a bunch of data never really did any good. So it's a question of interpreting that data and finding what's meaningful and contextual for different roles. So, you know, what a business manager is going to be interested in and what's going to be helpful for them and their roles is very different than, you know, your front of house staff where you might want to give them some pointers based on things that you've observed, but they don't necessarily need to have the same kinds of insights that the business manager does, for example. Nicole, I'll put you on the spot and ask you for an example of where you've seen this kind of bringing the, bringing the, the data to life in context um, for, for an employee. How, how specifically are, should restaurants be thinking about doing this? Where does this, where does this work well right now? 
Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, and I think part of the challenge is that there's typically room for improvement in most places. I would argue that although um, there are great technology tools that can help to do this, and a lot of it is about dashboards that are associated with some of the data analytics uh, and the content that feeds into those, I think it's sometimes as simple as just having some really clear and basic communications. So it could be emails to staff. It could be notes when they show up to work if they're working in, uh, in a physical restaurant location. It really comes down to understanding the work environment that your staff are operating in and tailoring it to that environment, their needs, and the ways in which they work. And there's not really any one great answer for that. Okay. It sounds like um, uh, fertile ground for, for invention and, and innovation. Absolutely. Um, I, w- I want to shift shift the conversation maybe a little bit to a different kind of uh, data, a different kind of content. Um, so we know from our research with consumers that uh, a quarter of people out there are watching food and video tutorials, at least in the United States. Um, and uh, that's more than any any other market that we surveyed. Barbara, what do you think that tells us about um, the state of the state of food and what kind of opportunities does that present for um, restaurant companies and food retailers? Well, I think you're you hit on a, a, a you know a big point. How many people were cooking at home during the pandemic and kind of got into it and like it and may want to you know up those skills and they would like to learn from their local people. Unfortunately, you're not going to be holding in-person classes right now. But if you're a restaurateur who, um, you know, is using your social media channels, is, um, you know, available on on like Facebook to to hit up with local people, um, you know, create, a, you know, a little recipe club or, um, you know, get something that's engaging, maybe do a video shoot of, of a popular recipe. Um, it's all kind of ways about engaging with your customers in in a different way. Um, And yes, it does take time and effort. um, And a lot of it is about um, the consistency of it, like you're consistent with your, uh, you know, what you do in your restaurant, your program of how you market your restaurant needs to be consistent too. And the other thing it really needs to be is authentic to who you are and to your brand. You don't want to be doing something that just doesn't feel right because somebody says it's kind of cool or picking up on a TikTok trend. You know, you have to look at the channels that are available to you um, and be very digital forward right now. Everyone has to be. Every restaurant from, you know, the smallest to the largest, your digital footprint is very, very important now. Um, so you have to examine which of these channels make the most sense for your brand and uh, spend the time to put together an effort to engage with your guests. I've got yeah. to just add to that because one of my favorite examples is honestly my favorite Indian restaurant, which is in Petworth in the South of England, Megdut's Mystique Masala. If anybody's nearby, I highly recommend stopping in. Um, but one of the things that they've done for years now, and we were so excited to start getting emails again, even though we don't live in England anymore, is uh, cooking with Millie. So um, Sanjay is the owner, Millie is his wife, and Millie does cooking classes for Indian home cooking as opposed to Indian restaurant cooking, which is what you get when you go in the restaurant. And they've really built an extremely loyal 
um, local customer base and even beyond, as we're examples of, because of the cooking classes as much as the great restaurant. So they have not, as far as I know, taken that online. I, I need to send them a note and encourage them to do some virtual cooking classes as well. But as, as you're saying, Barbara, this is really about authentic connection with the audience. And I think it's made a fantastic uh, dent in the local community. And it certainly has made uh, for a very loyal customer base. Yeah, Nicole, I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. It it strikes me that um, a lot of restaurateurs got into the business for the food and for the service and for the experiencing the experience of delivering a great meal. They didn't necessarily expect to be content creators and, and producers in, in a way that um, they really uh, needed to be. So what advice do you have for the Millies and the, and the Sanjays as, as they look at this kind of new digital channel and, and how it can be used to grow their reach and grow their business? I think picking up on what Barbara just said, you know, they've, they've already got the substance. They're doing all of this. The question is then, how do you put that out on other channels? And it's it's kind of taking the content, the substance that you already have, and figuring out how to spread it across as many different channels and, and routes to connecting with your customers as you can. And in some cases, even with an audience that that may be very unlikely to come and visit your direct uh, physical restaurant, but who you may have other ways of engaging with and and building a customer base with over time. If nothing else, you're really building a fan base. So it's it's thinking, uh, it's thinking far more broadly. It's a little bit of a variation of the old you know think global act lo- or think global act local, and and it is really that mix because you can reach such an incredibly wide audience uh, when you've got something that that is appealing. And I think that that sincerity, that authenticity, that substance is really what appeals to people. Barbara, how do you think that affects the design of restaurants themselves? Are we going to see a, a hybrid restaurant studio, restaurant stage? Do, do we need to be building our spaces in a different way? Well, I, I think spaces are going to be built in a different way moving forward, um, you know, based on, you know, what we're seeing. If you go into a restaurant now, there's some kind of weird shelf for delivery pickups or something, you know, so there's that, that's going to be put into the design. Um, you know, the open kitchen has always been kind of a trendy thing and, and people like to watch all of that. I don't know that all of the chefs like to be on display for that. Um, but yeah, I, I think there, you're going to, you know, the kitchen is not necessarily the most well lit place <laughs> in the restaurant. Um, but you know, they, uh, I think restaurant restaurateurs may want to, um, you know, invest in, in better technology to help them do that. Um, and you know, it doesn't take that much, you know, you can shoot pretty good video on a, on a phone these days. And that's where I think the authenticity comes into it, that it has to, if you kind of plan and plot these things out too much, then you're going to take away all of those things that make you, you, because you might be a little too professional. Um, so, you know, sometimes you just want to have it be simple. 
Um, and I think, you know, with a lot of restaurateurs, there's so many things on their plates, you know, as we were talking about the data and all the things that they that they need to to look out at, look at and figure out now that, um, you know, when you could keep it as simple as possible for the things that they need to do, that will get more bang for their buck as they kind of cultivate an audience. Um, it will kind of change how how they look at their space. Um, do they need as much space? Can they get away with, with less? Um, it, that, you know, we're still kind of feeling this out. Um, you know, well, when we kind of come out of this and see what spaces are available and who's making moves, um, it will be interesting to see what the restaurant of the future, um, incorporates. Okay. I want to close this out with a, with a view towards the future. Um, I was speaking with a, a restaurant owner a, a couple of months ago. And one of the things that she said is um, she would never again lease a space that's not pandemic proof. So for her, that meant needs a drive through, needs some outdoor seating, needs a, a place for, for rapid pickup. Um, I want to ask each of you and Nicole, I'll start with you. Um, if you had a buck to spend on making uh, a restaurant, let's say pandemic ready, pandemic proof, um, where would you spend it? Uh, I, it's hard to disagree with uh, with what the restaurateur you spoke with said, and you, it, it's hard to find locations that have all three of those things. By the way, the the uh, speedy pickup, the the drive through, and the outdoor seating. I think my money would be on at least some appealing outdoor space. Um, I I think that is going to be something that comes becomes useful at some point again in the future. Um, I also live in Southern California, so I'm somewhat biased because we have a great climate for that. But I think one of the things that we've all learned through this past two years is to enjoy being outdoors and and to make the most of it when we can. I think there's an element too here, and I I will just add one uh, kind of slight tangent into the mix as well, which is I think what we're also going to see is something where there's almost more of a self-service approach within restaurants. And whether that's a that's a new version of the cafeteria kind of thing um, or not, let's see. But what I have definitely observed and discussed with, with friends and colleagues of mine is young people who really have an absolute affinity for ordering and um, interacting online, but who have this strange but very deeply held fear of actually interacting with people. So whether that's picking food up or eating in a restaurant, I think there's going to have to be something that that adapts to that trend. Uh, maybe we're able to change that uh, perception and, and, and tendency among young people, but it's something that is very clear and seems to be quite a, a substantial aspect of, of this younger generation. And it's something that I think we need to respond to as well. All right, Barbara, how about, how about you? If you had a, a dollar to spend on the, the restaurant of the future, where would you start? Um, I totally agree with Nicole. I would 
definitely go with uh, more outdoor space, um, something that gives you, um, you know, this illusion, uh, if, if even that, that, um, that you're uh, almost like in a uh, open air market uh, far away. And um, it create it adds to the ambiance and the whole experience of dining out. You know, dining is a celebration. You're there with people you want to have a good time. So, uh, you know, drive throughs, I think they're great. Um, but a cult, they're not for the culture of every single restaurant. Um, and uh, I think that, you know, you need to have that kind of um, sense of cleanliness in a restaurant. So I think we might be going back to seeing a lot of white, a lot of white tile. Um, and that, you know, that, uh, that sense that you are safe in that environment. Um, uh, not, uh, not a lot of clutter. Um, so, uh, a lot of digital, a lot of tech. Um, you know, I don't necessarily think that the paper menu is gone. Um, but I think people have gotten used to using QR codes and, and such, um, and they're safe on their own phones. Um, and I think that technology is going to advance and you're going to see, um, you know, that comfort with everything, uh, on the tech side, pay at the table, um, maybe even robots delivering your food. (laughs) Well, you know, we'll see, um, you know, all that is, is the interesting stuff that we kind of a few years ago had thought was years in the future that now we're seeing uh, is applicable today. All right. I, I love where you've both taken it. The future of food is about the future of eating and, and being, being together. Um, well, we're at time here. Um, Barbara and Nicole, it's always great and to, uh, to get together with you. And from wintry Boston, uh, I hope next time we can get around that, uh, that meal in, in Southern California. So Um, Thanks so much for joining and look forward to continuing the conversation soon. EPAM Continuum integrates business experience and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real, because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovate till they exist in the world. Barbara Castiglia and Nicole Franz, it was a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. Buck Sleeper was our interviewer. Our producer, Ken Gordon, always has time for a phone call. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer, and I'm your host, Allison Coden. Until the next one, thank you. Thank you.